Welcome to Don't Eat Your Young. I'm your host, Beth Quass. If you have ever felt nervous or scared about running a code, coming to a code, wondering if you should call a code, this episode is for you to listen to. Susan Davis is the rescue RN and she is um, teaching people how to prep for codes, to recognize when they need to call it and what to do the first steps. She really takes it down to the nitty-gritty of how to respond. I'm so excited to have her here today, so please welcome Susan Davis. Welcome to the show, Susan. I'm so happy to have you today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your nursing career and how you've gotten to where we are today. Yeah, it's one of those journeys that you don't know you're on. And all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're a cardiac arrest education specialist. How did that happen? <laughs> so I did start out in trauma. So emergency uh, was my thing. And I definitely work better in that type of environment. I loved trauma medicine. From there, you know, responding from critical care emergency room to the inpatient environment is where I first started seeing the difference in the mindset and the skill set of someone who works in critical care versus an inpatient environment. So um, from there, I, uh, I, I had a great interest in critical care and I ended up getting my medic license while I was working trauma because I wanted to do flight. So I did a little bit of flight and um, not, I didn't do that for very long because I didn't like being on call. I was a mom with three kids. And although my sons thought that was super cool, like high five, mom, you're out of here. My daughter, and my mom were sure I was going to die. You know, every single time I, <laughs> I left. And so that worry wasn't worth it. So I didn't do that for very long, about a year and a half. And then um, I did some cardiac stuff. I, I, I was indoctrinated into an ICU nurse. The uh, CV ICU. So cardiovascular, like, holy smokes. You want to talk about some smart nurses, right? Uh, so I, I loved, that was the, probably the best education in, in cardiac stuff uh, for that advanced type of medicine that I had. And then I completely pivoted my career because again, I was, a, I was a single mom and I had three kids and they were, they were not good children. <laughs> they were very, very <laughs> active in sports and life. And um, two of my sons were traumas during those days from their sporting issues or accidents. One was a motorcycle accident and the other one was, um, oh, I don't know, jumping off BMX or jumping off something high. I don't, <laughs> so that led to, um, me actually pivoting to, I became the director of a large corporate American Heart Association program. And during that time frame, uh, the schedule far, far more suited my life of being a mom with three kids. So it was wonderful. I worked for state college. I represented a local healthcare system and I trained with my team about hundred to 200 healthcare providers weekly in basic advanced and pediatric life support. So over the, over that time frame, which was close to a decade, you know, we trained hundreds of 50, 60,000 healthcare practitioners. And so here's where it starts coming together. I had my internal view of being a, you know, um, an ICU nurse, and then I saw the others. And, and back then, by the way, you know, I, I, when we would arrive, I would think, gosh, this is just a, kind of sort of a hot mess. What's going on here? But then, and then I got the lens of watching all of these people come through our classroom and seeing their fear and their trepidation and how ill prepared they were and even worse, how it made them feel. Yes. They were so uncomfortable in that educational setting. And that was it. See you again in two years and now go back to your unit. And, and that's supposed to be, that's it. 
So if, if you go back and your organization or your immediate leadership doesn't prioritize some hands-on practice, that class where you were scared to death, embarrassed because you're nervous in front of your peers is the preparation you get for a cardiac arrest. Yeah, I have seen it. I've been a nurse a long time. I've taken ACLS and BLS many times. And every time you see somebody carrying an ACLS book, there's fear in their eyes. They <laughs> don't want to go. They're worried. I'm like, it is a class that's going to be great and you're going to learn. But you're right. Every two years, are you kidding me? Especially for those that don't work in ICU's emergency room where you're where you're having to use those skills. If you're a bedside nurse, I totally understand that fear. And so what you are doing is bringing a little bit more comfort, I think, to people that are worried. Do you agree? Oh, for sure. And and you know what? I've, I've discovered since I dove into this, honestly, it's, you know, people who are critical care people, they have a skill set and a mindset that's very different than everybody else's. If you work in EMS, if you, you know, you have a skill set and a mindset that's very different. And so cardiac arrest is something that we're expecting to see. And we're the kind of people that run to it. But everybody else doesn't, is not all warm and fuzzy about cardiac arrest. It gives them a great deal of stress. And so if you, if you break it down, what our education and training looks like, it's usually critical care driven as well. So you have your critical care team bringing in this education, even if it's American heart. And so them being around them, just being around them, much less being taught by them. We have a weird hierarchy, you know, fear right there. Just start without even, we don't even know what they're going to say, but surely they're going to judge us because we're not, you know, we don't do this all the time. We don't think that way. We are not running to it. We're afraid of it. And so there's so many layers of behavioral uh, mindset behind being comfortable in a cardiac arrest situation. So for real, you have to not talk like you're a critical care person. You have to just talk meat and potatoes. So I break it all down to literally step one, step two, step three. And the relief when they listen to what I, how I teach this, like critical care people are not all that in a bag of chips. They're scared too. They just channel it better because they're used to it. So there are so many ways to make this so much more approachable. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. I agree. There are different mindsets and that doesn't mean anyone is better, smarter. You're right. It's how they channel it and what they're used to. So I so appreciate that you look at it from the lens of someone that isn't comfortable with it, that doesn't see it very often. And so I remember taking ACLS for the first time and I was scared to death. I studied for weeks. I was only young 20 something and I had a drill sergeant that taught that class. And, but I tell you what, I remember a lot. I learned a lot, but I was scared to death taking it over and over. It's changed over the years, but tell me how you teach differently than a typical ACLS course. Well, here's the entire ACLS course. If you're ready, this is what I say. Okay. First of all, take a deep breath. You don't have to know the rhythms because the machine knows the rhythms. So right, right there, people lose 20 pounds (laughs) because nurses are scared to death of not knowing the rhythm. And I always say, you're not going to know the rhythms. They don't look like they look in the book (laughs) when it's a human, they just don't. So if you don't spend extra time and go take a special class and read more stuff, we had what? 
uh, one chapter in cardiology and, and nursing adult 101 800 years ago and that's supposed to be our baseline so i teach don't worry about the rhythm you the machine knows all you have to know how is to push the button on the machine and it knows whether it's a shock of the rhythm or not so first of all forget that second of all it goes like this are they sick or not sick if they're sick we're going to use electricity if they're not sick we're going to pick a drug and then if it's too fast, we're going to slow it down. And if it's too slow, we're going to speed it up. I don't care what they're called. Deal? And they're like, deal. I'm like, okay, class is over. <laughs> That's fantastic. But that's it. That's ACLS. Quit worrying about it. The stress, you're right, is probably most of the problem coming in to learn something is being so stressed out. So that's amazing that you can just break it down into something so simple, at least as a foundation. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to learn the drugs and we have to learn it and we have to know it. And there will be foundational knowledge that we have to have. But, but when it comes right down to it, we have two to six minutes to do compressions and electricity. If we are worried about that top drawer, which is what they're, they're worrying about the rhythms and they're worried about the drugs, but guess what we don't do when we're worried about that? <laughs> we don't do recognize the problem, call for help, begin compressions and use your electricity. That's it. The best science in the whole wide world supports only those two things right? for survival. By the time we get to the top drawer, it's because we did not do those first things that were in the top drawer. So I try to tell them, you know, two to six minutes, master those first two to six minutes, which is the whole premise of code prep, of course, level one. And then when our critical care teams are like, yeah, when are you going to get to our stuff? And I'm like, okay, show me you got this. And if you got this at about a minute and a half, you'll be ready for your first drug. And then we can change your rhythms and we can make it as hard for you as you would like. But I'll tell you what, again and again and again, they can't until we do it a few times and then they do it. So I think it's, I think it's about less is more instantly. How can you remember something so important in a fear state in your mind and body? Right. Absolutely. And so when people come in, you know, the group that you're having in, if you're the instructor and you are tailoring it to that specific group. For sure. And, and, you know, the beauty of where I, where we were teaching these courses, and this was for a large healthcare system. So it was every, I mean, every specialty would come in. So I would have groups that would be respiratory therapy. You might have a pediatric cardiologist, you might have a PT and you might have a transporter. Well, that's not true because transporter is not going to have advanced, but they would, they might be all being a basic life support class together. Right. So the beauty of interprofessional classes like this is I, I always say you, you, we don't get to choose how we're going to do basic life support. It's the same for everybody. <laughs> it's the same. So I don't care if you're a pediatric cardiologist. I don't care if you're a transporter. We still have to recognize the problem called health, being a person, usual electricity. It doesn't change. So once we get that playing playing field and, and it's like, you have to slow your role and literally make that a major point because everyone goes right past basic life support. And now we're into these algorithms and that stuff is just, I mean, it's not cool. <laughs> That's an important point. You have to start with BLS before you can move to ACLS. And I, I was in a code situation. They called a code and it was right outside the hospital doors and knowing everything that I know, we weren't allowed to do anything other than BLS. And we had to wait 
for an ambulance to come, even though we were right outside of the hospital, but those were the policies. That's very hard, but that patient collapsed and BLS was what was going to save that person's life in that first few minutes, like you said. Yeah. And the research, I I just got back from the uh, Citizen CPR Foundation. They have this amazing resuscitation conference uh, every two years out in San Diego. And I just got back and the research, the top researchers in the world presenting their science on why hands-only CPR right now is the gig. I mean, you know, giving breaths, that, that, that went out of vogue pre-pandemic, that went out of vogue. You know, we have six minutes where compressed electricity is how the, how the body responds in a cardiac, a sudden cardiac arrest. So it's, it's the top science as well as, I mean, people feel so frustrated, you know, we want to get IVO2 monitor and all this stuff, but really in the majority of the world, we only have our hands. And if we're lucky an AED. Yes. And there's people think you're in the hospital. So all that goes away, but it's not true. We're just people. We're nurses are people. Transporters are people. Cardiac, uh, pediatric cardiologists are people. And, and we get scared too. And we, although we have equipment right there, if we don't do hands-on practice with it all the time, then it's still going to be a, a, a ruffle and it needs to be broken down to just the basics. And when we do that, everybody is part of a basic life support rapid response team. Everyone, just like at home, you know, you're waiting at home, you call 911, and you wait for the team to arrive. Well, the same thing happens in the hospital. Yes. We call for help and we're waiting for the team to arrive. But in the hospital, the the average time in the United States for rapid response teams to arrive is 4, 4.3, 4.5 minutes. The time in hospital for the to first shock in the United States right, is nine minutes. That's the average time. Shocking to me. It is shocking. It's shocking. We're supposed to be compressions in one minute and, and, and shocking within two. So this is a huge problem. It's, it's a huge problem. And, and those cardiac arrest, advanced cardiac algorithms aren't cutting it. So we could keep focusing on that, making sure these nurses know these rhythms, know these drugs. But that's not where the, the outcomes aren't coming from those drugs and those algorithms. The outcomes are coming from managing confidently those first few minutes. Yeah, and the first people to typically respond to a code situation are the ACLS nurses because the physicians are who knows how far away and the ACLS nurses are ready and they're ready to go. And those are some of the smartest people I've seen in a code. You're not even kidding. But even pre, if you think about it, you know, I talk about the hospital, I, I, I um, equate it to a, bun, a burger, a hamburger. I always talk about my hamburger. So the top bun being the ICU and the bottom bun being the ECR, um, uh, ER, pardon me, but the middle of the hospital being the BLS burger. So usually, I mean, the entire rest of the hospital is basic life support. I mean, there's some step-down units and so forth, but usually there might be just one person on that unit that has ACLS and everybody else is basic life support. So even before our critical care nurses get there, who's there? I, and they say, I say, so, you know, people have, uh, hospital systems have code roles. And I say that my, my program comes pre-code roles. Like what happens until those code roles start? Those are those first two to six minutes. Yeah. So we can't talk about starting it starts when it is a second the person's found the clock started so that you there people who are there they are rescue one two and three regardless of job description they're there rescue one two and three and that's that's the core of level one uh, of code prep and i'm sure you 
get those, all of those people, not just nurses. Uh, like you said, the transporters, anyone that's had BLS, don't be afraid to start. Just go, go, start, don't wait. And I, I joke all the time. I'm like, okay, and it's always a trick question. I say, okay, so how do we call for help in the hospital? And they all pause, their eyes get big. And I know they're trying to find the right answer, right? I think it's 444. Oh, we pushed the button. I was like, okay, nope. <laughs> you holler, I need help in here. And you don't leave the patient because you're up. You are instantly life support. You are life support, your compressions and not just regular compressions. People think about, I got to save this person. Their heart's not working. These are save the brains compressions. Like your compressions have to be good enough to get goodie in and garbage out of the brain. And so they can't be too fast where we're not getting goodie in and garbage out and they can't be too soft. They have to be, you know, and I just got asked this question yesterday. It was, I was presenting at a, a gated community yesterday and they said, well, how do we know how we're, you know, how we're, if we're going deep enough and fast enough, I was like, you know, it's such a good question. You're not going to know. <laughs> this is where you're a human and you have to use your instincts. You have to be thinking turkey baster and keep that person alive. So if you don't get, you know, gravy in and gravy out, you're not going to get any <laughs> gravy. You have to be thinking turkey baster. It could be a 300 pound person or a 90 pound person. You know, the science says two to 2.4 inches and hundred to 120. The science, come on. We're not going to be talking about numbers when someone's dying. So right. you just have to use, and I think that's the other thing is I think we're at, actually, those algorithms teach us to maybe not use our instincts, our instincts. You watch nurses in a code. Your instincts are to go to it and start it. And then they actually, should we? It drives me crazy. Should I, shouldn't I? I'm not sure what I should do. Well, we all know what to do. The fact that we're doing that, should I, shouldn't I? There's a problem. There's a, That's another, that's a mindset problem. And, a, and, and from our leadership, it's a lack of support that we know what exactly what we should do. We own this moment and we're going to do it. And we're doing a basic life support. So get out of my way. <laughs> I love that you take you're right. You don't have to remember all that stuff. You don't have to remember how many inches just do and you break it down and you make it so anyone can understand. And I love that gravy and gravy out turkey baster <laughs> things. Even in my head, I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. Move the sludge, move the sludge. Yeah. Cause we're, we're, we, 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 I think it's a huge disservice. Critical care people often are like, can you imagine? They're like, Susan, can you get them to at least do compressions by the time we get there? And I'm thinking like, you know, you're part of the problem. We're part of the problem. We, you can't think that that class where they were scared to death in the land far, far away from where the magic hits the fan, right? In some classroom with simulated equipment, teams that are not their team. So it's not their team. It's not their equipment. They've got the drill sergeant looking at them like, wow, you are not getting this, are you? <laughs> And even if you knew it walking in the room, you instantly don't know anything because of the fear factor. Yeah. And now we go back to our unit and we're supposed to respond and be rock stars. There's a huge gap. It's a ridiculous gap. It's been there forever. And I keep saying, I have not recreated anything, you guys. I'm just calling everybody out. Standards equal commitment. I just, I just talked about that today. I mean, if you're saying this is a standard, then you have to be committed to it. Otherwise, our, our outcomes would match our, our outcomes will match our commitment, put it to you that way. Yeah. And that's how you set a standard. So you saw the gap and you have created what? Tell us what you are getting out to people that helps them in these situations. So I did just that. I, I, I broke it down. Like, what do I want? Where, where is the problem and, and how can I fix it? Because this seems just silly. This just seems silly. So I created 
a program called, in fact, the name Code Prep. I, I was studying in my graduate uh, work early in my master's. I was studying in-hospital cardiac arrest uh, response and mock codes all over the country, all over the world. And I put together this amazing mock code program like us critical care people do. And then I was walking in the door. I thought, you know what? This is just junk. I'm just repeating all the research I just read from all over the world. And it's still not working. We don't need a mock code program. We need a code preparation program. They need to know what to do until we get there. So I started over. I said, I'm going to start to the actual just from scratch. And I do. Like we literally, we go to the crash cart. They don't know that the wheels are locked. They don't know that it's plugged in. I can't tell you how often I've seen, you know, drywall coming down the hallway and the wheels, and here it comes. And of course now they're, they're nervous and they're fear. If you don't know how to do the pads and undo the pads, I did a, they don't know how to turn the defibrillator on. They're afraid to touch it. They, 90 some percent of them have never taken the backboard off. Okay, so let's just talk about that. And everyone wants to talk about the cardiac rhythms and the drugs that go with it. I'm thinking we're we're a bit off track here. Like they need to be able to handle their equipment comfortably and confidently again and again and again and again. If you add up the the wheels and the and the plug and not plugged in and get can't get the backboard off, they're let's face it, they don't even get the backboard. So our compression our compression quality is in the in the trash without that backboard if they're on the bed in the hospital. So so code prep really truly I, I have five modules. Uh, they do, they, it's mindset. What are we talking about here? And then I do visual acuity, which I train. This is my early warning system. I, I created, I, I threw this in at the end because I would be remiss if I didn't do something upstream on, on how, how can I support nurses to catch the problem? Because the best cardiac arrest is the one we prevent something that's not more charting. Uh, you know, early warning systems are great, but they're only as good as they're used and the and timely information put into them. And we know what nurses are doing. So mindset, the second one is visual acuity. I teach a green, yellow, red. I stole this from my emergency, my pre-hospital knowledge of a MCI, a mass casualty in, um, incident where the green are walking wounded, you know, yellow have the one issue, red have two. It's just a real intuitive, like you're good. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yellow, I'm not sure, gives them permission to get help. And I go into all about that. And then red is, yeah, we got a problem. It's time to co-prep the space, bring the cart. Where's the um, stool? clear the room, you know, we're, we're thinking proactively. So that's a 10 minute module, visual acuity. And then I go to the emergency equipment and it's literally like step one, step two, step three, how everything on the outside of the cart is what you need to save a life. Quit worrying about that top drawer. And then rescue one, two, and three, who is rescuer one, two, and three, and what are their duties? Everybody is the first answer. And the second answer is, you know, one, you find the person you're up, you begin compressions. Two, first one up to get there, their immediate job is to support number one on their compressions. First thing, you become the CPR coach. You tell them to take a deep breath, slow down. What can I do to this space to make those compressions more optimal? Lower the bread, lower the rail, get the pillow out, position the patient, open the airway, whatever you can do for compressions first. Second is then room prep, knowing that the world's on the way. And then the third is the cart grabber. Cart grabber, everyone grabs the cart, they bring it in and then rest your one, two, and three, they do all the steps. They get the backboard, they place the pads, they turn on the defibrillator and they push the button. But I, I train everybody to push the analyze function. No harm, no foul. Step one, step two, step step one, turn it on just like an AED. Two, push analyze, not charge. 
these new defibrillators are, the charge is already in there already anyway, but you don't have to know the rhythm machine does. Push the analyze button. In less than 10 seconds, the machine knows. Shock or not shock. Guess what happens if it says shock? We clear, we shock, we go back. <laughs> and you know what we do that? We do it again and it, we do it three times. Three times in the time frame. often, I wouldn't say often, occasionally, before help arrives. It's silly. It's brief, hands-on, repetitive practice of those first core two to six minutes. And we are shocking three times before help arrives in the hospital. That that makes me feel better. And I've been doing this a long time. And to break it down into such basic steps, and I guess what I see is basic. I mean, truly, turn the machine on. That's a big deal. And when you're stressed, you can hardly see. So just to know where that on button is, is a really big deal. It's a big deal. You know, I, I if you, I, I usually have one sitting here, but you know, on the defibrillator, I, I teach, you know, in the red, because they're dead, you got your eye, anything that's red on a defibrillator is going to be something to do with shocking because it's, it's bad. So if you've never noticed, but like the plug where the defibrillator goes in, that is red where the pads connect, that is red. The steps right on, on the defibrillator have literally, it says one, two, three, <laughs> and it's in red. So I just, I'm like, you don't need to worry about the rest of this machine. Just one, two, three. And we are, you know, like doing compressions, ordering pizza when they arrive. Like we got this, <laughs> we got this. <laughs> and then critical care teams, when they arrive, you know, we have, we build into code prep as well. We, there's a, a, you know, a formal handoff and then a formal debrief. We do a, a quick down and dirty debrief. You know, honestly, what was the good, what, what, what'd you see? What's the good, bad and the ugly? And then later, because patients either probably going to go to a higher level of care or perhaps didn't make it one way or another. But if you skip that debrief, you're really skipping not only an opportunity for quality improvement, but a touch base on your heart and your soul with your teammates. I mean, you know, it is not cool. Everyone's not made out of lead and wrapped in cast iron like emergency room people. You know, and we don't want our nurses going home, bringing that home to their family. You know, if they if they if they didn't do what they think they should have done, if, if, if the outcome was bad um, and, and, or good, or, or they were unsure in any way, shape or form, and we let them leave like that are bad once again. So. Yeah. This is, I can't imagine anyone not wanting to take this course, whether you are a nurse or in the hospital, outside of the hospital, because to make it sound as simple as it is. And I know it's scary anyway, whether it's simple or not, you can save lives. And I know you are very interested in outcomes as well for what you are doing. I am. And you know, the weird part about it is I've been so focused on, well, the focus of my doctorate was, it's a long title, but it was code prep, interprofessional drills for nurse and interprofessional self-efficacy. I mean, it goes on and on. I was really, outcomes weren't even on my list because I was so upset with how, how it feels to not know what to do or to be unsure whether you should do it. Um, I was, that just, it's, that's why code prep was created. And, and then I was like, oh yeah, I, okay. So the patient outcomes, that's cool too. <laughs> I mean, and, and it is true. It's very cool. And, you know, if we master those first two to six minutes and we do get goody in and garbage out from our brain, then we will be our, and, and we get them to post resuscitative care as soon as possible. And we do our best. And then we sub them after, but we're going to have cerebral scores that are, you know, ones and twos is what we're after us. We want someone to go home and have the holidays with their family. We want them to be having a new year's uh, 2024. What's going on this year? What are my plans for the future? 
you know, a, a good, getting them to the ICU is cool, but getting them home is much cooler. So what you said, you know, how we feel about something really resonates with me. And I'm sure it does a lot of other people feeling like you don't know, feeling like you're stupid. I think we've, we have all felt that we've all been there, but to be able to take a course where it's okay to feel that we understand that you, you are human, you would feel that. And here's what we're going to do to make it so that maybe you can feel less uncomfortable in these situations. That's a big, that's a big thing to me. Well, and you know, I give, I, I always say this, like I am the permission, like I, I do, I do speak the standard of care. I, I, I'm not asking anyone to do anything other that's not the standard of care. So get out of your head and realize that you have permission to do this. We have a duty to respond this way. And I give permission to, you know, my critical care teams, because they truly don't know either half the time, right? But they think they're critical care. And so they, they maintain this hierarchy, you know, bravado, and they're scared to death too. Yeah. There's usually only one or two in each unit that are the ones that are the real, I call them crackheads, you know, lovingly, of course, but you know, <laughs> yeah. they're the ones who run because they love this and they've got this, but everyone else is like, yeah, great. I'll, I'll watch all of your patients. I'm good. <laughs> like go for it. But to say that I've been, let's say a nurse for 20 years and admit that I'm scared to death of cardiac arrest, that is another weird, you know, gig that nurses carry. Like I'm supposed to know, but I don't. And I, I, I would, I don't want to admit it to myself, much less my colleagues, because I have seniority here. I've been here so long. Surely I, I've seen this a hundred times, but they haven't, you know, it's, it's, it's um, high risk, low frequency. Some nurses, I, I spoke to a nurse, she was a nurse for, I don't know, again, 20 some 30 years had one code did compressions on one patient. And she said she was like wrecked for a week. She remembers just being just wrecked. So people don't realize a nurse might see a code once or none in their career. And yet we're supposed to be ready. So, so a, a lot of it's about supporting their feelings and, and it, you, we have to acknowledge that they're not going to see it. So these drills, by the way, are two to six minutes. <laughs> so it's a, it's a no complain zone and it's about once a month. So they have to each do rest rear one, two, and three once. So it's a two minute drill for each. And if you're and if you're good and you're getting those pants on and you're pushing the button in a minute and a half, well then it's going to go quicker. Yeah. So it's it's just brief hands on repetitive practice and then and then back to work. No charting. No, just sign off that you did it and then and then you're done. So we have the teams course that's for everybody and that's the online part. But then I do um, my workshops. And I do the coaching classes because someone has to make sure that they're doing the drills correctly. And there always has to be a driver and, you know, like every other initiative in the world, especially in the healthcare, it'll fizzle out without drivers. So we need co-prep coaches. So that's part of my rescue tour is the, and I'm, I'm so excited about some of these invitations I'm getting right now to, to come in and we'll put together their core coach team. And they also get the team's course, but then I teach them how to put together the equipment for the drills, how to run the drills. And then depending on how long they have me stay, I really like to stay a day and a half. I want to go with my newly trained coaches into their environment and run some drills with their team members in the units. Cause that's, that's where, that's where the magic happens, you know, empowering them and, and getting the feelings out of the way and, and letting every, I let the first thing that everything in the class is equalizer. Okay. We're all scared. Don't lie. <laughs> don't lie. We're all scared. And this is horrible, but I promise you, this is going to be fun. And, you know, they, they relax and they get into it. But the first part of the, like, say is a day and a half. 
we do the course. The second half is hands-on with equipment. And then the, the third half if, or quarter, <laughs> if we are half the next day is, is hands-on in the unit doing the drills. And then I like to pop into different areas and it's not a surprise attack. That's the thing. We don't like to, I don't like to, you can do mock codes after you code prepped because now it's fair. Yeah. They're not going to feel silly and put upon, right? And you don't move to level two code prep, which is the ALS until you know they've got it. Now, and then they'll actually be asking. They'll ask for what's next. Now we've, we've, you know, we feel comfortable in this. We know we can run the code until help arrives. We know we've given the patient and ourselves our best opportunity. Okay, now challenges, challenges, change that rhythm. Let's see what the drug is. And, and, then, and then it's fun and they're ready, so. I am in awe of what you're doing. This is incredible work. You are saving lives because you're helping people understand how to just get started, just start. And that's what we need. And that is incredible. Mm -hmm. So next you're teaching nurses, nursing students should have this information. Oh, my absolute favorite. Yet take the fear out of them or some of the fear. I love working with nursing students. I, I I hope that I get more invitations to work with more nursing students because they are also very hungry. They're scared to death, but they admit it on day one. Yep, we're scared to death. <laughs> can you help us? I can do this class. You know, I've done this class. I can do it in 10 minutes. I can do my class in 10 minutes or three days. I, you know, I can fill it full of science. I can talk about failure to rescue. I can, you know what? I can honestly, if I get 10 minutes, I'll take it and we do it. And then I tell those nursing students, I said, now, you right now are more prepared than any nurse in that hospital <laughs> because they'll do it. Yes. If I say, I give them a permission. I'm the permission. This is the standard of care. These are the steps you're going to take. We practice it. They can do it in two minutes or less, which by the way, is a really cool research thing, by the way. Also speaking of nursing students, graduate nursing students, I love working with them as well because they always need a project. So code prep is a perfect grad school project for your, uh, for your master's or your doctorate. And you just take my work as a template and then, and then apply it from your lending of your specialty. So it could be, you could be OR, you could be, it doesn't matter where you are. You would apply it to your area and then do the research. So it works. I, I have, and it, so it works with um, people on the clinical ladder, magnets, magnet research. And then I have a really cool thing that speaking of students again is that analyze function, that button that turns it into an AED, by the way, and then it, then it talks, people don't even know. They, so let's just say it's not a shockable rhythm and, you know, not shock, not advised. What do we do back on the chest? We're doing compressions, but what amazing research to, to, because we can get the timestamp from when they push the analyze function, right? So let's just say there wasn't shock advised, but every time they push that button in a timestamp, what amazing research we could capture interprofessional who's pushing that button and the time and we can change that nine minute thing in a, in a heartbeat this is nine minutes is ridiculous yeah <laughs> so I, so i love the students whether they're brandy new brandy 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 new or graduate there's a place for code prep uh and it just feels good it feels good you feel like you're if you're going to be spending all those hours in graduate school doing a project this is a feel-good one it's it's good this excites me because I teach doctorate level anesthesia students and ah. I need a project. And if you don't think I'm going to talk to them about this, that's incredible. And to have that information and 
you know, part of their doctoral education is teaching. They have to have mm -hmm. a teaching component. And so to take this and educate whoever, whoever they think needs it, what an incredible project. I am so happy that you said that. Well, thank you. And you know, I, I get, I get the benefit of their results. And so I love, and I'm a DMP, you know, mentor I, I do. And I precept as well. And I, I'm always like, well, I've got a kind of a cool project up my sleeve, <laughs> but you know, I, I, the program is not perfect. I, I implement it myself everywhere I go, but the beauty of having students is their perspective. They can help me make it better because the more areas we do this, the better we all get because for instance, OR or OB, you know, all that specialty equipment. And, you know, I've been an expert witness in the past and, and, and read some of the stuff and they, they go on and on and on, but I go to those first two to six minutes. I'm like, the game was over right here. <laughs> the game was over right here. There's no need to deliberate on all this other stuff. They didn't do basic life support. So, and they always say, well, it's very different in the OR because we don't have this and we don't have that. And it's the anesthesiologist who calls the code. Well, people always say, well, how can we do code prep here? It's code prep works wherever a cardiac arrest occurs. We work with what you have. Right. It could be in your living room with your cell phone in your hands. It could be in the OR with all that equipment, the patient's draped, if there's sterile field, what do we do? Nurses, you should talk to OR nurses how scared to death they are because the anesthesiologist runs the code and we're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, but there's such a hierarchy in there. So again, I love uh, the opportunity to work with grad students on code prep because it, it really just makes it better. And I will throw in the plug for nurse anesthetists running those codes as well, including the anesthesiologists. Um, you're right. It, this can be pertinent anywhere. Absolutely anywhere. anywhere. Uh, that's why I love it as a project, because it, it doesn't matter where you are in healthcare. You can you can do code prep if, let's say, you're an admin. You We would look at what's the ROI. What's, you know, where can it be fit into my system? You know, whether it be through a magnet, through PNAP, through, you know, clinical ladders, um, it could be quality improvement. It could be, uh, shared governance. And there's, a, there's a view because believe me, me, I wrote from every view because <laughs> I studied code prep was the, uh, um, with the focus of both my master's and my doctorate. So every single class in both my master's and doctorate was written through the lens of code prep. So it's, there isn't a specialty. You could be an education specialist. You could be leadership specialist. You could, you could be, you know, clinical. And, and so it, again, it applies anywhere. I, again, I just am so incredibly thankful for what you are doing and teaching and not just the hands-on stuff, but just the, to say, it's okay that you don't know. It's okay to feel scared. We all are. And let's admit it and move on from there. I, I love that. So what tips, because this podcast is for nurses, what tips would you give nurses right now, just the down and dirty to move forward and, and move past that fear? You know, I suggest, I, I, one tip that I have is, you know, we always say, and especially of course the title of your show is very fitting, but they always say, you know, I always try to get, especially new nurses or any nurses to have a, a wingman when it comes to that decision-making process. And often, you know, nurses are jerks and um, they, may, they, don't, they don't support the question you've just asked me. So I, lately, one of my cool tips has been pal up with a respiratory therapist because they are a set of eyes and ears that are really, really good at cardiac arrest. People don't realize that respiratory therapists, they go to every single unit in every single area. So they see codes a lot. 
a lot of our nurses are on that same unit for many, many years, or they've been in two or three units. So that their lens of cardiac arrest is just that. And when you have that yellow, that green, yellow, red moment as a nurse, and you're unsure, and there might be a hierarchy in your unit slash your hospital slash in your rapid response teams that doesn't make you warm and fuzzy and want to ask, <laughs> ask a respiratory therapist. You probably have a PRN something anyway, having them come in and assess with you, and then they'll reassess with you. And that can be a way to confirm your gut instinct to call the met call or to call the higher level of care confidently. So that's kind of a sneaky tip I've been using, uh, teaching nurses lately is, you know, and I, I don't want to talk badly about nurses. I don't mean it that way, but sometimes having a wingman that's out of your specialty is, is a good idea. So that's one tip. The second tip is truly it's meat and potatoes. It's the meat and potatoes. Uh, you know, the, the, the fear from cardiac rhythms, get rid of it. The machine knows. <laughs> and then step one, two, three, literally. And in, in the beginning of our show, I went over the entire ACLS class. You know, if it's too slow, we're going to speed it up. Like, like who cares what type of block it is? <laughs> a winky one or a winky three. I mean, just the unless you're in cardiology and it's something like very diagnostic, it doesn't matter. It just means it's too slow. And then the patient's sick or not sick. And we know what sick looks like. We know what sick vitals look like. So sick, again, we're going to go straight to the electricity. So if it was too slow, that would be pacing. <laughs> if it's too fast, you know, we're going to slow it down. So I think it's, have a chat with me because I'll make you feel better about it. <laughs> and then, you know, even if you're, I mean, I speak to intensivists and, and, and a lot of people, and they are just that they're very intense with their knowledge. And it, it, it sets up a hierarchy of less than. And I'm, 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 I'm against less than in any manner. So cardiac arrest is the same for everybody, whether you're at home or whether you're at work, like we've got this. I love that. What incredible advice. And I hope that your code prep explodes in 2024, because there isn't one person that I can think that doesn't need it. That doesn't need to go back to the basics. Even if you've been doing it a long time, if you do one code your career, like you said, or you do it all the time because of where you work, um, everybody needs to have confidence in what they do and know that we're all on an evil, even playing field. And I love that. I thank you so much for sharing what you do. Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I, I would like to add that it's important, especially with my visual acuity. I have these badges. I put them in my badge. But, you know, we train the non-clinical staff, too. So I think there's nothing worse than a nurse feeling like she's alone with a super sick patient. You know, she's got six patients, she or he, you know, we have six, seven patients and one of them is really sick. Uh, you know, that, that, that already sets up your day to be just horrid because you're so worried about this one, but you still have the care of all these other patients. And so we really need eyes on the prize. Everybody should be green, yellow, redding. And by the way, I use RPMs, respiration perfusion and mental status and it's thumbs up or thumbs down. So I train this, whether I, I, I train this, uh, with our community members because they don't know when to call. Mm -hmm. And in the hospital, it's the same, you know, housekeeping, transport, PT, OT, nutritional services, uh, you know, there's a million people on that floor and they're looking at the patient more than the nurses. So it really does take a system to save a life. So we include, I do just that one module on visual acuity for everybody. Everybody gets the visual acuity so that we are all communicating. If your instinct, it's kind of like the um, internal rapid response call number that people, but, but, but 
This is just more intuitive. We're not putting, I, I'm, we have enough numbers. This is like the person's yellow. I think it's something's off and it's making me uncomfortable. And then this is what we're going to do. So it really does take a system. And I don't, I hate when nurses feel that they don't have a wingman. They should have support from everybody. I love that. You're right. Anybody going in that patient's room could have the ability to help out. And, and they should be able to do CPR, right? Because it doesn't matter, right? Cardiac arrest doesn't care who you are or your job description. We got to get uncrazy inside the hospital. I mean, hands-only CPR. If you think about this, a system, usually in a healthcare system, about half of the people that work for that system have some type of basic advanced or pediatric life support. But that leaves another 50% that have nothing. So how about make sure that they have at least hands-only CPR and visual acuity? So when I go in to, to hospitals and do evaluations, I always look at the number of non-clinical and say, hey, listen, I'd like to throw in, please let me throw in just this training for everybody else. Hands-only CPR, which you can do in you know, a 90-second ongoing, and then, and then the visual acuity training. Because we need them. And they want to feel part of what we're doing. They're scared too. And we all go home. We're all people. We all go into the community. So these are the exact same things. That was the beauty of the pivot when I went to the community was I realized, oh my gosh, you know, I've been focusing on the hospital so long, but we're all human and we all go home. 70 to 80% of cardiac arrests happen at home. We need to know what to do until help arrives, no matter where we are. So that's, that's how the rescue RN started getting a little crazy. <laughs> You are doing great work. And I would say anybody listening, um, check out Susan's Code Prep and her Rescue RN website. And then tell your family members about it too. Your friends, healthcare workers, non-healthcare workers, everybody needs to know what she's teaching. So I really appreciate what you're doing, Susan. Thank you so very much for, for letting me carry on about it. It is, I, I, it's my favorite topic. I am so glad you were here today. I hope this goes far and wide to those um, that are in the hospital or not in the hospital so that your work can save a life, save many lives. That's the goal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs>